Welcome to Building Safe Workplaces, casual talk about serious matters. I'm your host, Tommy Nitt with Hask. Today we are listening to our July 1st webinar on COVID-19's impact in healthcare settings outside of hospitals. As always, stay safe. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to our, our next series in our webinars. Uh, this one today is on other healthcare settings, and this is brought to you today by the University of Texas School of Public Health and the Houston Area Safety Council. Glad to have you back with us. If you've been joining us for this, uh, these, these series of webinars, welcome back. We hope that we're giving some, some good and relevant uh, uh, knowledge to everybody that's attending these. This is a, an interactive webinar. This is not a lecture series. So you should see a, a question option on your desktop or in the app that you're using for this system. Please type in your questions to that question box because that's how this uh, keeps interactive and fun. We want to hear from you. We want to know what your hot topics are, what your hot questions are, and we're going to try to answer all of them. Before I forget to say it, this entire recording of this webinar today, as well as the slide deck, will be given to all of the registrants on this webinar. So rest assured, you don't have to write anything down. You don't have to memorize anything. We're going to give you all of this information, uh, most likely this afternoon or, or early tomorrow morning. So you can have that and reference it as much as you as you want to. So again, welcome. We talked about asking the questions. This webinar, again, is geared on your questions. So type those questions in and we're going to answer them along the way. Like I said, UT, School of Public Health and HKSC are, are offering this webinar series. We've got mission statements that are geared to protecting the workforce and the public uh, health in general. So uh, we're, we're fortunate on the HASC side to, side to have this collaboration with UT. So um, uh, we're, we're happy to be here with you. Thank you to our platinum sponsors of HASC. Without their generous givings, we could not offer some of these uh, initiatives, as well as all of the donors to the University of Texas and specifically the, the School of Public Health and the Southwest Center. Thank you very much to all of our donors. Tommy? Yes. Uh, yes. I'm not seeing the slides. No? I'm not. Okay. Mm -hmm. Let me uh, get that back up here. Tell me if you can see it. Yes, now we can. Okay, perfect, perfect. So I'll just go back and, and say again, thank you to our donors, uh, to both HASC and and uh, the, the UT School of Public Health. We thank you to our, our generous donors. So a brief agenda today, you know, this is geared to other healthcare settings today. So we're not talking about restaurants. We're not talking about uh, hospitals uh, in general, our, our retail centers. We're talking about other healthcare settings. And we're gonna talk a little bit about well, what that means, first of all, but uh, really geared as much as we can towards answering questions related to that workplace setting. Here's our list of our, our guest panelists today. We've got our usual panelists from the University of Texas School of Public Health, but we're fortunate today to have a couple of guest panelists and featured speakers today. And I'm gonna turn this over to Dr. George Delclose to introduce our guests. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome back if this is not your first uh, webinar and welcome if this is your first webinar in this series. I'm George Delclose and I am um, an occupational physician and professor here at the University of Texas uh, School of Public Health uh, in Houston. Um, I'm accompanied today by other colleagues from the School of Public Health, 
Dave Dufreit is uh, the director of our industrial hygiene program and of our center, and he is has a background in safety and ergonomics, and he is at our campus in San Antonio, so that's where he will be uh, speaking from. Dr. Emery, Bob Emery, is the vice president of safety, health, environment, and risk management here at UT Health Science Center at Houston. Um, Dr. Christy Mena is a campus dean at our El Paso um, uh, campus uh, of the School of Public Health and associate professor there, and her background is in risk assessment. And Dr. Janelle Rios is a uh, faculty associate and director of prevention, preparedness, and response uh, academy, uh, again, uh, here at our School of Public Health. We're joined today by two guest panelists. Uh, both work in the area of home health. Uh, first, we have uh, Julie Abney, who is uh, has been the uh, is and has been the director of operations with Reach Healthcare Services since 1997. She has a bachelor in business management from A&M and more than 25 years of experience in business management and human resources. As director of operations, she's responsible for helping direct day-to-day -day operations, which range from employee and customer relations to managing the company's financial per uh, performance. And she's accompanied by Lilia Sparza, who is also uh, at Reach Healthcare Services. She is the director of clinical services there and has been since 2014. Uh, Lilia is a uh, veteran of the U.S. Marine Corps and has a bachelor's in nursing from UT Arlington, as well as certification as a home health care manager. Her responsibilities are centered in providing holistic medical care, staff development and outcomes, uh, improvement to uh, the ever-changing acuity of patients. So they are both with uh, Reach Healthcare Services. This is a uh, an organization that I am familiar with um, through personal experience, my mother actually, and they have both the nursing side of this uh, home health agency as well as the personal care side. So they bring that to the table. So uh, that's my introduction. Um, and back to you, Tommy. Which then makes means back to me. Okay, so I'm going to start off just kind of updating everyone on where we are as a state. Uh, I think it's not news to anyone that things are have not been looking good now for a while, uh, for the last few weeks. And this is summarized in this uh, study, where the uh, orange, uh, not this study, this graph, where um, the daily number of cases are plotted as uh, round uh, orange circles and the moving average over seven days is the line that goes through them. And what we have here is also uh, as a reference point because this goes from March until basically today, what we have are the different lines uh, that reflect the different actions that were taken along the way as a state. So for example, toward the beginning of April began the uh, shelter in place because cases were rising, and you'll notice that about two weeks after that, which is usually the time period where we have to wait until we expect to see the effects of whatever intervention has been uh, made, two weeks after the shelter in place, we can see that the cases started leveling off and stayed level until May mm -hmm. 1. Uh, at that point, uh, Governor Abbott began the first phase of the reopening. For the next two weeks, uh, the cases did increase a little bit, but not to dramatically, and so we moved on to phase two reopening uh, somewhere around the, uh, I think it was May 18th, and again, uh, we were doing okay, and then uh, came the Memorial Day weekend toward uh, the end of May. Uh, yeah, toward the end of May, and we'll see that since then, beginning at uh, two weeks or even a little bit earlier, uh, there's been a steady increase, and this has especially taken off after the phase three reopening 
that happened uh, a couple of weeks ago. So right now, uh, Texas is in a phase of rapid ascent. We had close to 7,000 new cases just yesterday alone in the state. Uh, number of cases per day does not tell the whole story, so next slide. Because one of the things that you may have heard on TV is that possibly uh, the reason for the increase in number of new cases per day simply reflects that we are doing a lot more testing. And when you do a lot more testing, you're going to find a lot more cases. And that is true. You are going to find more cases. But as uh, this graph here shows where we're plotting in the blue line is the increase in number of cases or the change in number of cases. Uh, again, since uh, this is more towards since the end of April up until current. And you see that initially it went up, then it flattened. There wasn't much of an increase. And then it really takes off the blue line. Plotted in the orange line are the number of daily cases. And so, um, yes, there is some increase in the number of daily cases that might reflect the increased testing. But the slope of that orange line is rising much faster than the number of cases. And so what it what it's telling us is that Although test, more testing may account for some of the increase, it does not explain the, the whole picture. There are other explanations, and we've heard a lot of them on TV. Mass gatherings, bars, uh, family birthday parties. Uh, we've, we've had rafting and tubing associated with all of this, and so uh, there are a lot of different factors. Next slide. George, let me ask you a question just while you're on this slide, because I think it's a great slide, and if I'm looking at it you know, as an attendee, Maybe a question would be, well, that's interesting that they 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 flipped at the end there. So how can you have more cases than you do tests? Don't you have to have a test to know if it's a case? Well, this is the 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 um, uh, this is the 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 increase in testings, right? So it's the percent change in new daily tests. It's not the number of tests. That's that's why they crisscross. If let me let me put it another way, if the increase in number of positive tests reflected in the orange line were simply due or exclusively due to the increase in number of tests, those two lines would be perfectly parallel, right? But they're not. They crisscross and the orange uh, has taken over. Um, so it's it's percent change of tests. It's not the percent number of new tests. Not the count. Gotcha, yeah. gotcha. Okay. Next slide. So another thing that we have to look at and that also uh, puts this um, issue of is it the increased testing that is driving the increased number of cases or not is what we call the test positivity rate. So if you do a lot of tests, um, but the percent of those tests that you have done that are positive, that are positive for COVID, remains stable or even decreases, then that could simply be a reflection of increased testing. But if at the same time that you're increasing the number of tests, the proportion, the percent of those tests that are positive is also increasing. You need to look elsewhere for an explanation. And um, this is one of the parameters that the governor's office is tracking, the percent positive test. Generally, um, we like to see these numbers below 5%. That means 5% of all of the tests done are positive. But since about May 24th, you see that there is a, a progressive increase in the percent positive. Last week when I was giving this webinar, we were in the yellow zone. That was that means we were between five and 10%. And just in this week, since that last webinar, we have moved into a more concerning level, which is the orange level where our rates are now between 10 to 15%. 
somewhere around 13% as a state. That's not good. Uh, and that uh, needs to be addressed. And that's that justifies some of the interventions, maybe hitting pause on some of the reopening or even taking a step back. Uh, next uh, slide. So, but uh, the, the data that I presented uh, to you so far just is, or averages across Texas, but Texas is a very big state with a lot of people. And there's a lot of variability in case rates from one part of the state to another. And so that's illustrated basically here in uh, on this uh, map, where you see some areas in one color and other areas in another color. And basically the darker the shade of color, the greater the hotspot, the current hotspot. So what this is reflecting are increases uh, or decreases in in the um, uh, in, in the what's called the seven day average over the, the last uh, week compared to the week before. So everything in blue mean is pretty good. Piney Woods and Big Country, for example, the numbers are static or even getting better. But as you go up the orange to or I don't know my colors, but it, as, as that shade of pink or whatever it is gets darker and darker, the um, the increase uh, in, uh, in 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 the seven day average is going up. So that illustrates, as of today, really as of yesterday, what some of the more areas of Texas that are more rapidly increasing are where they are. Next slide. Now we've heard a lot in the last few days also about. Hospital, hospitals reaching their capacity. And this needs to be put in, in, in perspective. Um, it is true that um, the more COVID cases that you have, even though the majority of COVID cases are not requiring hospitalization, some are. But the more you have, the, more, the, the greater the number that you're going to have that will require hospitalization. So that is taking up beds in hospitals, these COVID positive uh, cases. But also, hospitals had begun reopening. Some of the things that they were not doing during the, 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 the stricter period of the shelter in place, such as elective operations, have now been reopened. So that is also um, affecting bed capacity. So at the Texas Medical Center, we follow a series of um, early warning signals. We've been monitoring them. Uh, one is, uh, irrespective of the hospitals, it's the, the what we've just seen already, the case growth trend. And as we've seen in my previous slides, you know, the rates are going up. The rates are going up and they've hit what we call our red zone. So that means that there's been at least 14 days of positive average growth in the number of cases every day, but an even bigger uh, or longer period of positive average growth of the percent positive tests for COVID-19. Um, we also look at ICUs because those are the patients that require the most care. And we want to make sure that we have enough ICU beds to, uh, to meet the needs of the COVID patients while at the same time meeting the needs of other patients. Just because we have COVID doesn't mean that other diseases and car accidents and trauma have stopped. Um, they haven't. And so we've got to you know, attend everyone's needs. And so we keep track of how many ICU beds are uh, available. In the Texas Medical Center in Houston, the number of uh, ICU beds that are being occupied has been steadily growing over the last seven days at a pace of about 3.8%. This is still um, within the range of what we are able to handle. It's orange because we're getting close to what we call our base capacity. But all of these hospitals uh, also have a separate set of plans called surge capacity plans where they can move things around in a hospital and, and create more ICU beds even where there were none. 
by taking some beds and reconverting them to ICU beds, and that's the next level that we have to look at in capacity. Right now, we are at, we are approaching base capacity. We're nowhere at near surge capacity, but it needs to be monitored. Okay, so that's why that's in orange. The good news is is that um, we're doing a lot of testing in the medical center, and especially the last row here. Uh, we have plenty of personal protective equipment for our frontline healthcare workers, which was a big concern when this all started. And we have managed that, I think, very, very well. Our people are protected, and that allows them to care for COVID-19 patients, uh, knowing that they are well protected, which makes a, a huge difference. Next slide. So uh, just to finish up, uh, I wanted to bring everybody's attention to uh, an app, a free app uh, that goes beyond testing, but allows any citizen to monitor or track their own symptoms, or hopefully lack of symptoms, no symptoms, um, for themselves and for their families. This is a an ongoing study by Harvard a University that our university is also participating in. Um, anybody can download it on their app. It's totally secure. The data are de-identified. That means they can't link it back to you. And then uh, what this software does is you can analyze results, not individually, because they're de-identified, but by certain areas like a zip code or a county. Anybody can do that. And um, that's useful to employers because, you know, even though the state, like we saw on that map, you know, even though the state average may be going up, maybe in your area there's not such a big problem. And by having a, a good handle on what the disease is doing in your local area, that may also help inform you as an employer on what you're able to do and not do in terms of opening or not opening or stopping or checking. So we wanted to make you aware of this symptom tracker. We are going to make these slides available to everybody after the presentation. So you can uh, go to the, uh, the links there, the web links to download it if you're interested in it. And next slide. Um, uh, Anybody can use it. Families can use it for their families, um, and people in, in zip codes and counties and cities can do it. So businesses, as I was saying, in these areas could use this information for them to either add more mitigation strategies or at least feel comfortable with the ones that they've already implemented. So if you want more information on this, uh, our colleagues, Dr. Srila Sharma and Bijal Walla at the School of Public Health will be happy to answer any questions. Again, it's totally free, and it's, it's a service that we're providing to the community. Uh, a question came up through, and I, and I figured I'd just add, throw it out here now uh, when we're talking about apps. And the question was, have you heard of, of an app that notifies you if someone near you is positive, a COVID exposure type app uh, on on your iPhone? Yeah, uh, I've, I've heard about it. I have not seen it. And I have a lot of questions about it because, um, you know, uh, we have to be very, very careful that while caring for people and the greater good that we also protect people's confidentiality. So how such an app would know that somebody is positive, I mean, is it because somebody volunteers that they're positive or is there another way that they're being found to be positive? I would have questions of that. I'm not necessarily against it, I just need to know more about it. Sure. Lily, did you want to say something? This is, um, Bob? Uh, I, I'm sorry, Lily, did you have something? No, no, I'm sorry. Okay, so George, I just wanted to mention that uh, driving to work this morning on NPR, they actually covered this Harvard app. It, it was actually covered on the news uh, thing there. So it's it's receiving uh, national attention. 
Great. Well, as I said, you'll be getting the link here uh, after this presentation, this webinar. And I'll turn it over to Janelle now. Hi, everybody. I'm Janelle Rios, a faculty associate at the University of Texas School of Public Health, and I'm in Houston. Thank you all for joining us. Um, with that app, I am a study participant in that particular app, and it takes me about 30 seconds to answer those questions. So I do encourage everybody um, to, uh, to sign up and use the app as well. But what I'm here to do is to talk to you very briefly about a well-known and often used public health tool that serves as the foundation for controlling hazards in the workplace. It's called the hierarchy of controls, and hierarchy refers to the level of effectiveness of each of these controls. It's usually displayed as this inverted pyramid, and I've color-coded it here, and we're gonna go through each of those layers. I've been given two minutes to, to share this information with you, um, so I'm gonna try really hard to stay in that two-minute limit. Um, elimination, this is the most effective method, um, and it's not really all that visible. Um, Everything else, especially masks um, and PPE, that gets a lot of attention because it's really visible out in the public. Um, but elimination, keep the virus from entering your workplace as much as possible. And how do you do that? Well, you practice primary prevention techniques. Um, it, it, uh, wash hands frequently. Be sure, um, it, it, don't enter the workplace if at all possible. Um, if you can telecommute, which is what I'm doing, so I'm, I'm coming to you from my home, uh, so I'm not bringing anything into the workplace where others have to go, especially if they're conducting research experiments. Um, limit the locations that you visit where uh, non-household members gather. Um, I ended up having to go to the store for a reason last night, but I was, I was well protected. But I haven't been venturing out into the world, and I just don't want to bring the virus into my, my home as much as, as possible. Uh, next slide, please. Engineering controls. Um, these you don't see a whole lot either. They're just not visible. Um, engineering controls means that we want to isolate the worker from the hazard. Of course, the hazard being the, the COVID-19 virus or SARS-2-CoV. Um, Certain things that you can employ are within the air conditioning system. You can increase the number of air exchanges. You can add inline UV technology, um, increase the number of hand hygiene stations. So if you can't, uh, you don't have sinks, you know, using a hand sanitizing station is very helpful. Um, having signage that reminds people to stay six feet apart, um, to wash your hands frequently, to avoid touching your face. And uh, that's something that I do quite a bit. Um, so I have to remember not to touch my face, especially when I'm out in the world. Um, and cleaning and disinfecting. Um, here I have a hyperlink to the list NEPA registered disinfectants. This is a very handy tool that EPA has. Thank you, Tommy, for circling it. Um, it's very handy. Um, you can search this list by a number of different things. And one of those things is contact time. So if you are at a, um, a vet clinic, um, a dental clinic, and you have to disinfect something very quickly because you're, you're getting patients in and out, in and out, um, I would search by the lowest contact time possible. And I believe that is there's a two minute contact time. There may be a 30 second one if I recall correctly, but these are more powerful chemicals that are going to disinfect uh, the virus. Uh, next slide, please. 
administrative controls, that's that really refers to how we do our work. Um, so training, training um, and telling your employees how to screen themselves before coming into the office or into the clinic. Um, we talk about screening at, at the point of entry into the building, but screening really does start at home. Be sure that your employees understand what they need to look out for um, so that they don't come to work uh, sick. Uh, include telecommuting technologies, uh, hand hygiene, remember, wash your hand for 20 seconds, hands for 20 seconds. And you may also add resilience training because this is a stressful time that we're all going through. Um, and the number of work hours may have increased significantly, may have decreased significantly. Um, and, and that's all very stressful at the home environment, especially if there's a partner um, who may have lost a position or there's a, an ill member of the family. Um, so resilience training is uh, really a wonderful thing to offer your employees. Um, and practice social distancing, just you know, as, as much as possible, uh, stay distant from each other. Next slide, please. Um, and one of the least effective control measures, but the most visible is personal protective equipment. Now, the, I want to underscore here that personal protective equipment um, like this N95 respirator or this um, half-face elastomeric respirator these are meant to protect the wearer. That's exactly how they're designed to protect the wearer from hazards in the workplace, uh, respiratory hazards in the workplace. Um, so if you are using these in your healthcare establishment, um, know how to use them, how to clean them, how to disinfect them, um, when to change out filter cartridges, um, how to dispose of them. Okay, next slide, please. And Finally, we've added another category to this, this uh, classic tool, and that's called community protective equipment. And those are facial coverings. Um, and this is what you see uh, out in the world. And this is what um, our elected officials are, are wanting us and our healthcare providers are wanting us to wear when we are out in the world. There's a disposable surgical mask. I've also got some cloth uh, uh, masks that I wash and reuse, um, but these are right now these are kind of hot. So I've been preferring my uh, disposable surgical mask because it's it's a little bit um, cooler to wear. And I happen to steal this one from Bob's shop over there. But these these are meant to protect others from you. So it's it's different than a respirator. This is meant to protect others from you, especially if you're asymptomatic. Um, and shedding the virus, uh, and you don't even know. So this, I equate this to good manners. Wearing this in public is good manners. It's like covering your cough. It's like saying, excuse me, or thank you, or please. This is good manners. It's just polite. But have your employees understand how to use, reuse, and care for facial coverings. Um, and I add very quickly that only touch it by the straps. You don't ever wanna touch the inside because that goes up against your face. Um, and that, I think I went over two minutes, but um, I welcome questions uh, later on. Thank you. Go ahead, Christy. Yes, thank you. I am Christy Mena, and I'm the Dean of the El Paso campus of UT Health Houston School of Public Health. And I think this slide really underscores some of the comments made by both Dr. Del Close and Dr. Rios. Um, although this is a novel coronavirus, there have been 
of drivers of infection risks that have been identified, and we know that they're all related to exposure. So if there's no exposure, there's no risk. If there's any potential for exposure, there's going to be some level of risk. And so although we know that person-to-person -person transmission is the most likely method of spread of this virus, we, we cannot neglect the potential role of environmental services. So the fomites, those inanimate services in our surrounding. There have been well-documented studies of other similar respiratory viruses that have been transmitted through services in the workplace. So it's important to think about disinfection the way Dr. Rios described. We also need to think about the proper implementation of controls, just as Dr. Rios mentioned with the wearing of face coverings and what that means in different settings. And then also how we disinfect, choosing from that list in on the EPA website, paying attention to contact times, et cetera. Again, just always trying to mitigate exposure. And then finally, in whatever setting you're in, the public setting or a workplace environment or a healthcare facility, we need to remember the role of patients, customers, visitors of patients, other clients, they may come in and unknowingly disrupt any workplace safeguards that an establishment has implemented. So it's important to also keep that in mind. Thank you. Thank you, Christy, very much. All right, Dr. Bob. Bob, I think you're muted. Sorry, Sorry about that. <laughs> I'm Bob. Uh, so, uh, I got four points. I'll be brief because some of these have already been covered. But um, the uh, one, one thing I'd really like to underscore for all our participants is that, unfortunately, in the media interactions about this virus, um, the term novel has been dropped. And that's kind of an important point that people need to understand that this is a novel virus, which means it's new and there's stuff we know about it, but there's stuff we don't know about it. And so I think it's really, really important for, for us to underscore to our constituencies that we're doing the best we can to protect you, but understand the rules of the game may change as new information emerges. So if you think back to uh, early on in this game, I'm going to say it was around December or January, it was not clear that uh, asymptomatic transmission could occur. Well, now all of a sudden, you know, new things have emerged. And, and so anyhow, I just, my suggestion is to set that expectation to, to make sure you reaffirm with folks that based on the current best available knowledge, this is what we're doing, but understand this stuff could change. That's number one. Uh, number two, I think Janelle maybe touched on is this meaning that well, we get a lot of questions about people wanting to do thermal scanning or you know a, a screen, but really screen begins at home. And I would go back to her inverted pyramid that there are a number of things that you can do before you get down to the most highly visible part, which is the PPE, the, the, the masking. So uh, make sure that people understand that the most powerful things are uh, recognizing that if you're not feeling well, don't, don't go to work wash your hands, you know, the, these sorts of things that going back to her there. Uh, number three, I think we've talked about this a little bit, but a lot of confusion about masking versus PPE. There's this notion of face coverings and surgical masks. Those are intended for you to not inadvertently contaminate someone else, right? 
So they are not intended to protect you. They're just intended to keep you from inadvertently uh, infecting someone else because you could be a virus carrier, but not uh, exhibit any symptoms. As compared to personal protective equipment, which Janelle uh, uh, displayed a few, that's these N95s or a P100s or something like a PAP or a purified air, a powered air um, respirator. These devices are intended to protect the wearer. And um, the reason that not everybody in the public needs to have these is because there's a limited supply of those. And so the people at highest risk, those direct healthcare providers, that's where these things are, are being targeted. Uh, and then last, my, my fourth point has to do with cleaning and disinfection. Um, would like to underscore what I believe Janelle or, or Christy mentioned, that um, you want to make darn sure that whatever cleaning that you're doing, particularly on high touch surfaces, such as knobs and, and tables and that sort of stuff, uh, confirm that it is an EPA uh, registered disinfection, uh, disinfectant, but also ensure that the contact time piece is being adhered to. And I'm seeing this a lot where we have people in, in different settings where they're just spraying a doorknob and then wiping it off. And not that that is not an effective use of, of, of that material. Um, the um, I guess we'll get in, in the Q&A uh, part. Uh, Tommy will help me on this. But uh, there were questions about doing uh, area disinfection with things such as a vapor phase hydrogen peroxide um, UV light and the like, but I'll, I'll just table that right now, if that's okay with you, Tommy, and then we'll we'll see what the, any questions come in. For sure, that. sure, sounds good, Bob. Thank you. Okay. Yep. All right. Is this? Oh yeah, and there's a bunch of references, so I expect a full. <laughs> Thanks, Bob, and we'll turn it over to Dave. All right, this is Dave Dufresne signing in from San Antonio. We've gone from El Houston to El Paso to Houston back out over here to San Antonio. And uh, I'm just going to present to you a few of uh, resources for you for what we're calling other healthcare settings. Now, uh, as I research this, most of the information that is out there, or, or a lot of it, comes from the CDC. Um, and so I provided a link there for, uh, they've got information for dentistry, dialysis, uh, uh, work sites, uh, nursing home, as well as assisted living or long-term care facilities, as well as pharmacies. I uh, want to draw your attention to the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. They do have um, a lot of good information in there. The second link for OSHA there uh, provides information on how you should report and record that. And I've got a subsequent slide here. I want to go just very briefly into that. Our Texas Department of State Health Services provides, not yet, Texas Department of State Health Services provides the minimum recommended health protocols. And then I also put on there a couple of healthcare uh, facility associations, the American Dental Association and the American Physical, Ther Physical Therapy Association. They provide coronavirus uh, resources. And then lastly, what I think is a, an outstanding resource uh, that has been put together by the American Industrial Hygiene Association. They have specific um, areas that address dental settings, physical and OT clinics, as well as chiropractic and several others. 
And so I would uh, highly recommend that you go there to find some nice pearls of information uh, regarding how to manage your work sites. Next slide, please. Uh, as I previously mentioned, OSHA does uh, provide uh, some clarification on how you should record and report. I uh, have been, I have received a number of uh, inquiries on this very issue. Um, as well as what I'm reading online is, well, what does OSHA say about this? Do we have to report this? Do, how do we record this? And so let me just remind everyone, there's a difference between recording and reporting. When we talk about OSHA recordables, that's what we put on the OSHA 300 forms. And it's very dependent on if this is work-related. And many people ask the question, how do we show or how do we get the evidence to show that a uh, if a COVID case in our work site is work-related, OSHA does provide a little information there. They, they want to look and see if uh, what comes up from your investigation, um, what information the employer may have at their disposal. And then also they look at things, are there a number of people, a number of positive cases in the workplace? And so it's just, it's not very clear cut, but you do have to give a due diligence in your investigation as to how you determine if it is work related. And so that second link that I provided on the previous slide, that provides uh, some guidance on that. So that's a recordable, but also OSHA does require, remember, if the, for you to directly contact OSHA in the event of a fatality, and so uh, you do have to contact OSHA uh, in of a fatality within eight hours of that fatality. They also require for you to contact and report to OSHA directly any hospitalization of a worker within 24 hours. And so if you do have a worker that does uh, com uh, come down and test positive for uh, COVID and they, it does result in their hospitalization, and it is work-related, then yes, you do have to notify OSHA within 24 hours of their hospitalization. So again, go back and I recommend that you look at that uh, preceding link that I provided on OSHA guidance on recordables and reportables, and that will provide you some guidance in, on this issue. Thank you very much, Dave. Well, that wraps yes. up our, our initial slides there for uh, the first part of this webinar. So now, what we're going to kind of do is is start with a, a Q&A session with our guest panelists. So again, let me flip back to our question slide here. We, we want you to ask questions uh, from here on out. So feel free to type those questions into the question box on the app or the desktop or however it looks like on, on your end of the screen. But um, the remainder of this webinar will be solely question and answers and uh, having a conversation with our our experts on the on the panel as well as our, our expert guest panelists here so let me just start out by asking and i'll throw this out to julie uh and not really ask but tell us a little bit about what your company does uh, so we're a home health agency and we provide nursing services as well as physical therapy speech therapy occupational therapy and home health aides to um, patients that are um, homebound. So Medicare patients, um, 
you know, some insurance, commercial insurance patients that are homebound and have a hard time getting to doctor's offices, that sort of thing. Um, the other side of our business is we provide um, private duty nursing, um, which is skilled nursing services that um, patients need that are for 24 hours a day, seven days a week type of things. These are patients that are on respirators um, or quadriplegic patients um, that need nursing care in their home for long periods of time. And then in that division as well, we um, provide caregiver services to patients that need people, um, sort people sometimes call them sitters, um, but they're caregiver services. So uh, patients that need to have someone in their home with them when their loved ones can't be there to take care of them. Um, they need help with bathing, dressing, um, cleaning house, any of that sort of thing. Okay, so you are your company is solely focused on bringing people into the homes of those who who are, are needing that care. Correct. Okay. Okay. Now, is is that type of, of of job sector going to the home health going to to someone's house? Is that included in the governor's mandate to test uh, nursing home uh, uh, residents, or is that completely separate? No, it's not. Um, we you know, going to patients' homes on the nursing side, um, we have to have doctor's orders to do any type of testing. Um, so we refer all of those cases and all of those questions to the patient's doctors, and then they give us the orders whether or not they need to be tested. Okay, perfect, perfect. And, you know, obviously, there, I'm sure on on the family side, there's I'm sure there's a fear of, well, now this nurse is coming into my office, to my house, what, yeah. if, what if they're sick? Are they going to give this to grandma? So mm -hmm. what types of things, uh, and maybe I can throw this to Lily, what types of things are you doing to put those fears at ease to that family to know the person we're sending you, sending into your house is, is, is protected and doing as much as they can to protect your loved one? Um, the, one of the main things that we do is we try to send and the same clinician to the same patients on a consistent level. So there isn't a lot of cross um, with uh, the clinicians that they have coming into their home. We've also set up um, the PP guidelines for um, our staff to ensure that when they go into any home, they do um, have the masks on um, that they have, they put on foot coverings before they go into into their homes, um, depending on the what they're going to be doing, then we step it up um, to gowns or face shields or you know whatever is is required for that. We also attempt for not too many family members to be present during the visit, um, you know, just so we can minimize that risk as well. Excellent, excellent. Um, here, here's a question on uh, totally kind of off that topic, but uh, uh, they come, they, the questions come in as they come. So I'll, I'll throw this one out there and probably geared towards uh, uh, George. Does a person who is infected with a virus develop protective immunity? So maybe give a, a short summary on, on antibodies and what we know now. Sure. So um, the quick answer to that is we don't know for sure just yet. So when um, people have a viral infection, there are different types of tests that you can order that reflect different stages or moments of the disease. 
the one that y'all have seen on television where people get stuff poked in their nose, the swabs, and they get swabbed, um, uh, is what we call a PCR test. And it actually looks and tests for the presence of the virus. And um, that's sort of the gold standard test. And that it will tell you if you have a COVID infection right now. Then we've heard about antibody tests. Uh, and, and there are many other different types of tests. We're going to focus on the PCR and the antibody tests for right now, because those are the ones that are most commonly ordered. Um, you know, after several days of having an infection, your body begins to develop antibodies against the virus. And there are two types of antibodies, what we call IgM, and the other one is IgG. IgG stands for immunoglobulin, so immunoglobulin M and immunoglobulin G. Um, typically within about a week, starting at about a week from the uh, COVID infection, the onset of COVID infection, the IgMs start going up. And then as the, as the disease uh, resolves, they go back down. And within a short period of uh, a little while after that, the second type of antibody goes up, which is IgG, it goes up. And instead of going down, it persists. And for some viral diseases, having detectable IgG means that you have acquired a certain sense of a certain level of immunity. Okay. Now that immunity may last a short period of time, a few weeks or a few months, or it may last the rest of your life. With COVID right now, we don't know what the situation is. Uh, viruses such as the one that causes measles, we know that once you develop antibodies to measles, you will have them for the rest of your life. But then remember that we also every year have to get a flu shot. And that just tells us that the flu virus, the influenza virus, changes every year. And so even though we get flu shots, which is a vaccination and it's designed to trigger antibodies, uh, it doesn't last except for that flu season. With COVID, the answer is out and it's not so it shouldn't be surprising that the answer is, is still out because this is a novel disease, as Bob was saying, and we are collecting information now. We don't have information on people who had COVID three years ago because it didn't exist or we think it didn't exist. So time will tell. Now, there are some indirect, there is some indirect evidence that probably once you have had a COVID infection, that you are left with a certain level of immunity even though we don't know how long it lasts. Why do we say that, even though we don't have all of the data? Because cases of people having two episodes of COVID, two real episodes, so a reinfection, a second infection with COVID, are very, very unusual. So with the millions of people that have now had COVID in the world, you know, the reinfection rate being so very, very, very small, it tells us that probably there is some immunity. Now, I don't know if they'll have that immunity six months from now or 12 months from now. It depends what we'll have to watch. Excellent, thank you, George. Bob, do you wanna say something? Hey, can I weigh in on this one? Cause I, I, something I skipped over on my thing was to talk about briefly about this R naught value. And I, I wanna punt it back to George here in a second. But uh, one of the things I wanted to encourage people to monitor for is in epidemiology, there's something called the R naught value or R sub zero, and that's the number of uh, subsequent cases that one might expect if you have someone who's infected and they are unprotected. So for example, seasonal flu, um, if we have a person who's infected and then we might expect 1.1 additional infections to occur if these people were not 
they didn't have the vaccine or they weren't doing other hygienic things. Um, the other day, the last time I looked, because this is an evolving issue, the um, uh, for the coronavirus, the R naught value is, is somewhere around 2.2. Uh, and to put that in perspective, uh, measles is up around 15. So for one case of measles, if you have a bunch of people that aren't with the MMR, you could wind up with that. But uh, George, I, I, I'm not going to throw you under the bus here, but I just saw something in the paper this morning that suggested that the R0 value might be around three. Is it? Well, uh, okay. So the R0 value, as you said, is one infected person, how many on average, how many other people can that person infect? And we've been quoting all along 2.2, 2.5. Um, uh, th th this value, and, and even three if you want, um, this value assumes that there is no protection, okay? So this is one unmasked sick person at close distance to another unmasked person or two or three, uh, and they transmit it. But there are actions that we can take to reduce the R0 value, and that's actually the trick to uh, getting that curve flattened first and then decreasing. When we were flattened here in the in the uh, Texas area, in the Texas area, uh, our R0 value actually dipped below one for a little bit, around 0.9. Whenever it dips below one, that means one infected person transmits to fewer than one other person. And that's because people are wearing protection. With this surge now, the R0 value is going up again. It is not at two, it's around 1.1 or so, or 1.2, I believe. Um, and that may sound like a low number, but it's not when you multiply it times the thousands of cases that we are seeing. So if, if, if you have an R0 value 1.2, you're spreading it, if you're, unless you're protected, you're spreading it to more than one person. And that's what's important to remember. So we, we it is a, a number to keep uh, an eye on. You know, and, I, and I've seen a lot of headlines, especially yesterday and today, on on the notion that it, it, the majority of cases may not have been spread by the average Joe who has this virus, but more of a, a super spreader that is spreading this to multiple people, and they just happen to you know, be more contagious, uh, for lack of a better uh, phrase. So what do we know about that? Well, we, we, we don't know why they exist, but there are some super spreaders. And typically, you'll know you're in front of a super spreader when you, when you hear about somebody uh, who was in a situation and many people, after that person got infected, many people got infected. So one that comes to mind, it was uh, several weeks ago, or maybe even a couple of months ago now, I, don't, I lose track of time, is the choir. Remember there was a, a choir where one person spread it to another 50 or so members of the choir? That's an example of a super spreader. Uh, there have been examples on, um, there was one in Florida of some uh, women who went, they, they went out and it was a group of 16 and 16 got it. So, you know, they may have been to a bar or something else, but it's unlikely that those represented 16 individual contacts. It was probably one or two people that got it and rapidly spread it to the others. So, you know, for that, that super spreaders have an R0 value much higher individually. They spread it to more people. But the one we, we quote is an average number. Gotcha. A question that came in, and I think Lily mentioned that your some of maybe some or all of your your healthcare workers are wearing face shields. Is that what I understood? 
Yes, depending on the intervention that they perform. So the, the question, and, and maybe this is a, a, a Bob or a Dave question or whoever, uh, talk a little bit about face shields compared to masks or facial coverings. Um, you know, I, there was a, a report on the news at some point that said, maybe there was a study that came out that, that said, maybe wearing a face shield is better than wearing a facial covering. Do we, do we have any, any data or studies on that? This is Bob. Um, there was actually new CDC guidance that came out, I believe, yesterday. And George, check me on this um, because we're on a phone call today at five o'clock about this issue. But um, about the uh, CDC recommending for people with direct patient contact to now, in addition to uh, the mask, to be uh, wearing uh, eye, eye coverage, which would be in the form of safety glasses and or a face shield, because apparently contact with the mucus in the eye uh, is, is being identified as a route of transmission. So I'm, I'll, I'll defer to Lily and Julie. Did you guys see this? I think it came out just two days ago, this, this uh, recommendation. Help me with this one. I, I just sent a note to Luis Ostrowski about this because apparently. So, so yes, uh, I'm familiar with it. And actually, some of the hospitals uh, in the medical center are already now uh, you know, we used to ask separately, where are you wearing a mask? Where are you wearing gloves? Where are you wearing eye protection? Now it's, where are you wearing a mask and eye protection? And so that brings me to mm -hmm. the, the point, you know, a face shield is uh, mainly for the purposes of eye protection. It is not a substitute for a mask or a facial covering. You're supposed to wear that underneath the face shield. A face shield, I like them because they're much more comfortable as eye protection than the alternative, which are goggles which can be very tight around the eyes and hot and all that. And, and face shields are, uh, I think, uh, a good alternative. But they are, if anything, they are a substitute, especially for eye protection. You don't have protection if, you, if you're not wearing a mask with a face shield over it. And, and yeah, I would, I'm sorry, go, go ahead, Dave. Yeah. Well, I was just, just gonna, just a reminder that the face mask is not necessarily protective of the wearer, it's protecting of the, the community that that person is around. As opposed to a true respirator, that is an approved respirator, that is more protection of the wearer itself. And like what Dr. Delclose just said, the face shield is designed you know, to protect the eyes as well. Keep in mind that the healthcare providers like physical, occupational therapists, they're in much closer, potentially much closer contact with patients. And so whether they're doing, let's say, wound care or other type of procedures, um, that's a different type of exposure, a little bit more intimate there, and the risk is a little bit higher for exposure. So it's a little bit different, but that's totally different from in wearing something out of the community or just in a typical business office setting. Right. So, and the masks that will be used are different on a patient who is not a COVID-19 positive patient compared to taking care of a patient who is positive. So we have the surgical masks, like you said, to protect our patients from our clinicians. But then for the patients that would be positive with COVID-19, we have the N95 masks that our staff would wear to protect them from the patient. Right. So I, I was wondering... Um, with regard to this idea of the face shield now, that, that's something that might be reused. And so in folding in some sort of disinfection protocol 
if you're going from place to place, right? Is that what you guys are doing? I'm kind of curious. I don't yeah, so for the face shields, um, since they're not being used across the board with every single patient. The goal would be to disinfect it in between uh, patients if, it, if you were going to use it. Um, at this point, we haven't had um, the opportunity to use those as much, um, but we're prepared to do the protocol will be to use it as much as we could, but to disinfect it between, um, you know, patients that are seen. Right, because I'm thinking of something like a dentist office or something like that, that, that I would imagine as you see a series of patients, it, mm -hmm. and, and we're going to run into, in my opinion, I don't know this, but I think we're going to run into a, uh, a supply chain shortage of some of these things and uh, be compelled to go into the cleaning and the disinfection mode. Um, and I, I see with this new CDC recommendation that I could see these face shields becoming in short supply until the supply chain can really ramp up to address that. I, I, I defer to your guys' opinion on that, but that's... Mm -hmm. In agree. home health, we've seen that. We, um, okay. Since we're not as big as a hospital, since we don't have that, and for us to get the PP that we require, it has been, has been hard. Um, so we've had to go outside our typical um, medical chains for um, supplies to, to try to get those type of items. Right. So just to add to the real quickly to this discussion, this is what this occupational health and safety research is doing. I've got colleagues at other institutions who are looking at this very issue, the flow of around face mask, what, you know, does that provide additional respiratory barriers or protection or, you know, in conjunction with a face shield mask, respirator. And so there's research going on out there that's looking at these very questions. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of what we're, we're trying to answer those. Well, and, and continuing on the, uh, on the mask topic, because there was another question that came in and, and Janelle alluded to this earlier, masks are not comfortable to wear on anybody. They're uncomfortable, they're hot, they're itchy, you wanna move them around. So what are, you know, a big concern right now as we are in the hot months and workers, a lot of workers work outside, what are, what are some thoughts around wearing those masks out in the heat? Are there any, any um, you know, cooler masks we can, we can recommend as, you know, kind of a, kind of a, Catch 22, right? But we have to work out in the heat. You have to wear a mask. But um, any thoughts from our panelists on things you maybe you've tried, experienced that are a little less hot? Um, so, oh, go ahead, Lily. No, no, no. You please go ahead. Okay. I was just going to mention that you know um, we've had our we've offered our caregivers and our nurses the the mask like you had the little. A disposable mask. We've also made and purchased um, the cloth mask. But I think a lot of the um, our employees have decided that a rotation of sort helps. Um, you know, they complain about it, the elastic hurting behind the ears or the ties getting in their hair and all that kind of stuff. So a lot of them prefer to rotate out different masks um, throughout the day or even throughout their shifts. So that kind of helps just for those people. I, I would add that, you know, trying out different masks uh, really does help because I've decided I for the summertime, I really like this. 
the paper, it's light. Um, and I like the ear loops uh, versus um, this one, which uh, one of my friends made for me, um, but it's got two layers of fabric. And to me, that's very hot. I also don't like the strings because it does get stuck in my hair. But I can tell you, my husband prefers the strings because he has short hair and um, it, it, it makes it easier for him, but it is hot. It's hot. And right now I have two air conditioning technicians working in my attic and it's very hot up there. Um, so they take frequent breaks, they drink water and, and uh, plenty of fluids. Um, they're just, they're being careful. Um, and they come into the air conditioning from time to time to, to alleviate um, heat stress. But it, it is hot, um, so I, I recommend these, but it really, you just have to try out different ones and see what's most comfortable for you. Yeah, and I, and I would agree. I, I wear this one um, oftentimes, and I think it is, it is the coolest, and Walmart is now stocking these on the shelf in, in boxes, so that you don't have to get this from a medical supplier. Uh, it's just a, it's a paper mask, and it, it, it does what it's intended to do when it's a little cooler, so I, I, would, I would personally agree with that. I, I will reveal my invention from this morning because I I also a proponent of the, the the surgical mask. But what I found is that I made this string, which now I can leave it hanging there, oh, and then when I go up, I'm ready to go. What do you think? Well, you should patent that. My glasses. I I, swear, <laughs> I, just, I literally just someone's made gonna this do it. Someone's gonna patent and make a million. Okay. Yeah, that's true. We'll split the profits. <laughs> um, I don't choke myself. <laughs> a question on, you know, on, and it, uh, it's a crystal ball question, but maybe uh, geared towards George. In your opinion, how soon will we see a mass uh, disseminated vaccine? A mass disseminated vaccine? Um, I think we're still several months away. Even saying that, you know, when you compare the length of time that it normally takes to develop a new effective vaccine, key word is effective. There's okay. tons of vaccines that are being developed, but we need to see and make sure that they are effective. Uh, typically, it takes a decade or more. And here we are pushing the pedal uh, since about uh, end of January is when it first started. Um, so the thoughts are hopefully early 2021. I think Dr. Fauci said maybe by the end of this year. I kind of think that's a little bit optimistic. Um, not because the technology is not there to develop, but they are. They're, they're, doing, they're going through all of the steps, but in an accelerated way. But um, one of the main limiting, time limiting steps is you get to a point where you try your vaccine that has passed. All of the stages seems very promising. And now it's ready to be tested in human beings on a large scale, what we call a phase three uh, trial. Uh, you have to give that vaccine, but then you gotta wait to see if it's effective, right? So if I give the vaccine mm -hmm. and I just end the study a month later because, hey, nobody that got the vaccine had the, uh, the disease a month later, well, how do I know that that isn't gonna be the case that the opposite isn't going to be true two months later or three months later. So the duration of immunity obtained from a vaccine is very important information. And so you got to have these folks in the study long enough, at least several months, to know if it works, if, if the immunity that the vaccine uh, confers is long lasting. So that's one of the limiting steps. Now, one of the things that they've done that's very interesting, 
in terms of getting ready for that effective vaccine is that some of the uh, drug manufacturing companies have uh, are collaborating with some of the um, vaccine researchers or research institutions to um, be ready as soon as that vaccine is identified to start cranking them out or, uh, you know, by the millions. Normally, that's not the way it used to be done. You, the, these companies, the manuf the people that actually make the vaccine would wait around for the researchers to say, hey, we got a good vaccine, and then they would start the process of gearing up to make lots and lots of vaccines. My understanding is that's not happening now. These companies are already tooling up, ready. They don't know which vaccine is going to come in, but when it comes, they're going to be able to really accelerate cranking it out. To the to the to society. Excellent. Um, you know, a question came in while we were talking about these, and our you know some of us recommended wearing these in the heat. A question came in that said, "What about the N95 mask?" So Bob, maybe or Janelle, maybe just reiterate when you would want to wear an N95 mask. Uh, I'll, I'll let Janelle take a first stab at it, and then. <laughs> okay, so this this is an N95 mask. Um, it is designed to protect the wearer. It is when when you receive one of these at your workplace, um, you should also be fit tested and trained on how to use this because this is an actual respirator. So fit testing involves um, there are two kinds of fit testing, uh, qualitative and quantitative, but it's meant to um, ensure that the seal is up against your face very tightly so that air isn't getting through the sides. So this, you know, this is electrostatically charged. I mean, it's, it's really, a, it's a piece of equipment versus a mask. You know, this is gonna be loose fitting. So who are you protecting? The public, you wear this. Yourself, you wear this. Um, these are in short supply, however. Um, I, I just, George's um, slide showed a green dot next to um, PPE supplies, but there are still some uh, hospitals who are reusing, disinfecting them and reusing these N95s. Although these were designed to be disposable. Um, so we, we really want to save these for healthcare providers who are doing procedures um, that aerosolize stuff. Um, so that's 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 the, the word on N95s, but I, I welcome Bob and George's um, commentary. Yeah, so Janelle, since you have all the visual aids there, uh, maybe you can uh, also just speak about the um, uh, elastomerics, because I, it, oh. as, as these N95s, the, the elastomerics, maybe you can explain the project we're involved with. Sure. And then if, there are a couple of research projects happening right now that I'm a part of um, that are uh, funded by CDC. This is a elastomeric respirator. It, it's also a true respirator meant to protect the wearer. Um, you also get fit tested and trained on how to use this. Now, this one doesn't have the cartridges in it. Um, so these are P100 cartridges that go on either side. But um, here, this, this should fit very tightly up against your face. These typically have been used in industrial settings rather than healthcare. 
Um, so one of the research projects that we're doing um, at Memorial Hermann Hospital, and just yesterday we heard that we received funding to go also into Texas Children's Hospital, is to determine the feasibility of using disinfecting and then reusing these half-face elastomeric respirators, um, which is very exciting. Uh, this, is, this is a fun project that we're doing uh, in conjunction with Baylor College of Medicine. So um, what else, Bob? Uh, well, uh, just um, from our anecdotal evidence that uh, the healthcare providers seem to, um, the elastomerics, they yes. seem to, to, they're more comfortable. Right. Um, some healthcare providers have preferred the elastomeric, even though it's a little heavier. But um, this uh, uh, chamber um, is bigger than the chamber inside of the uh, N95. So some healthcare providers have reported that they prefer the elastomeric for that reason alone. But now because of the pandemic, they prefer, especially um, in internal medicine, emergency medicine, um, anesthesiology, they, they prefer this because they can control it and they're not having to um, scrounge for, for N95s. They can control this, they can disinfect it on their own um, and reuse it. So, so I, 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 I amen to everything you said. <laughs> I would just, to those that are on the webinar, I would just uh, explain or reiterate, reiterate that um, the reason not everyone has N95s is that they're, they're, they're in short supply. And the idea is to reserve them for those healthcare providers that are on the front lines and that for others, um, the, the surgical mask and other face coverings, that, that, that's why. And I think it's important to emphasize that not even all healthcare workers that are in hospitals are wearing N95s. Right. So it's mainly reserved, as Janelle was saying, for what we call aerosol generating procedures, things like intubating a patient, extubating a patient, giving them a nebulized treatment, uh, things like that, or anybody that is caring for a known or suspected COVID patient. The hospitals now, the majority of them, have set up COVID units, and the people that take care of those patients in the COVID units are, uh, they're wearing N95s, but if you go out to the general medical ward of a hospital uh, where the, that isn't the case, they're wearing surgical masks specifically to try and preserve the supply of N95s for those within healthcare workers who most need it. Excellent, Dave, did you wanna add anything? No, I, was just, I had a question for Julie and Lily, and I think that it's kind of along the same question that Jessica just typed in, but um, I'm a physical therapist uh, in my previous life, um, and I cannot think of a more challenging work environment, and uh, let me rephrase that, an uncontrolled work environment than going into a home health care setting, um, yeah. you know, for home aides, nurses, therapists. Um, so Julie and Lily, could you kind of walk through how y'all prepared for your protocols? Because it's not just what goes on inside the home that you can't control. There's also those between visits. Mm -hmm. uh, and what, how you came, uh, came about with your protocols and that whole process. 
so what we did um, with our clinicians when everything started coming to light and um, we did meet with everyone. Uh, we did a teleconference um, to go over the expectations of exactly how we were going to protect both, you know, our patients and our staff. Um, so the our first struggle there was actually getting equipment to um, to use. So we immediately put things in place like the wearing of, of masks at that point, whatever mask you could get a hold of, you know, we were trying to to use them, you know, at that point. Um, we've always been pretty strict about trying to keep one clinician per patient, um, but we tied down a little bit more on that. Um, screening, I mean, that's that's been the biggest thing is we screen everybody before we even go into the home. So even if they called them the night before to set their schedules and do the screening before they go to their home, they call them again and make sure that nothing has changed. Um, so when they go patient to patient, I mean, they've been screened like two, maybe three times before our clinicians even decide to, you know, step in the door. Um, and so far we have been very successful with our uh, census that we haven't had um, any issues with um, transmitting the virus from one patient to another. Actually, we managed to keep our entire census without it. Um, which is good, but we do reinforce every time we see them, even if it's just in a joking manner, you know, it's like, hey, don't forget your mask, you know, don't forget your booties, don't forget this. Uh, every meeting that we have with them, we have a PPE conversation, even if it's just a simple reminder of things that, you know, we should all already know, but still just the fact that it's, it's a constant, it's a constant, constant, constant reminder um, I think is what's helped us uh, with where we are right now with our infection control specific to COVID. And on that caregiver and private duty nursing side, um, we've done some things. The first thing we did was reach out to all of those patients and make sure that they had some knowledge of what was of COVID and, and the symptoms and that sort of thing. We did lots of webinars, um, lots of communication with our patients and our employees. Um, so I think that kind of kept everything in the forefront and, and kept talking to them. Um, and then also what we did to, again, as Lily said, we limited the number of people going to patients' homes. So, you know, our overtime has increased because we're cutting down the number of people going into a patient's home. Um, which is, you know, a cost that, that we've taken on to, to help keep our patients safe. Excellent. Thank you for that, that uh, feedback. And this kind of goes along with that um, same topic of protecting your, your healthcare worker when going inside somebody's house. And the question was, what if you know the person you're, you're going into their house for says they had a positive antibody test. There's probably a George question and, and not a cut and dry one either. They say, by the way, uh, I, grandma just had a positive antibody test. Does that healthcare worker, should they put on full PPE having that information? I would get the details. Yeah. Generally, if they have had an antibody test um, and it's an IgG and nothing else is positive, so let's say they've been swabbed and they're negative, right, for the PCR, then that's evidence of a past infection. But the devil's in the details. So if I hear somebody say that, 
and I'd like to know, Julie and Lily, I mean, do y'all have an infection control specialist or somebody that y'all consult? Because this would be the typical thing that I'm guessing in a home health setting. If you don't know what to do, you would consult that infection control person and say, hey, here's the information. What do you think? But typically, somebody who, uh, and you know, nowadays they're doing a lot of antibody testing in the community, people who don't have symptoms, and some of those folks pop up positive for the IgG but they don't even remember ever having the infection. That's evidence of a past infection. If anything, it might indicate that there's a certain level of immunity. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Uh, question was, how do we get a copy, a PDF copy of the webinar in the slide deck? We're gonna send all of that out to the email address in which you registered for this webinar. So you're gonna get everything emailed to you, rest assured. Um, uh, a question, this is a good one because I, I saw something on the news earlier. Apparently there's a new swine flu in China that the <laughs> World Health Organization is concerned about. Any any information on that uh, to our, our PhDs or George? So I know what everybody else knows, what they've read. I, I went in and read in a little bit more about it a day or so ago. So if, if what was reported in the news is correct, this, you know, they're I'm guessing that in China, they're constantly looking at new forms of flu because they have had several uh, incidences of transmission of a flu-type virus from an animal that has been in an animal forever and ever, and then, then makes the jump from an animal to a human, right? This uh, COVID was not the first one. SARS had happened, MERS had happened, in the swine flu uh, of 2009 it happened. Um, and so they're constantly looking at these viruses. My understanding is, They've found this in pigs, so it's a swine flu, right? Which is not the first time that pigs have been the vehicle uh, or the, the, the animal. Um, and uh, I guess they're looking at characteristics of it that they know or they think might represent in the future that it would be, it could make the, it had the potential for jumping from the animal to the human. My understanding is that has not happened. I, everything that I read was it downplayed, you know, the level of concern at this point in time is just something to keep an eye on. Excellent. I know I know a question that I get all the time um, is, what is the lag time from when you were exposed to somebody that you know is positive to when you should go get a test and that test is is going to show positive if it's going to show positive is it a day is it a two day what what do we know about that right. okay so we we do know and this is well studied that the the range of incubation period that means from when you're exposed until you actually develop the disease because once you're exposed you're not going to if you test that same day it's going to be negative because the virus hasn't had time to look around, see if it's comfortable where it is, you know, start spreading, that type of thing. Um, and so that's called the incubation period. And we know that for COVID, it ranges from about two to 10 days, but we've always said two to 14 days. That's what the basis for the 14-day quarantine is, uh, is based, as justified with. Um, so the first important point is if you've been exposed and you don't have symptoms, don't test the same day wait a certain number of days. I can tell you here at the medical center in Houston, almost all the hospitals in these people who are asymptomatic, we wait a minimum of five days. And that's because, again, the range is two to 14 days. Most people will develop or will turn positive, will develop symptoms if they're gonna develop symptoms between days five and eight. So the earliest we test is at day five. 
Um, but, you know, let's say you test at day five, the person doesn't have any symptoms um, and they test negative. That doesn't mean that that person shouldn't be watched. I'm not saying quarantine, I'm saying watched because they might develop symptoms. They might be one of those folks that develops their symptoms at day eight or nine, and then you want to retest them at that point. But if you test too soon, you're going to get a false negative. Perfect. Bobby, you have a comment? I actually have a question for Christy. <laughs> um, and I'm wondering if, uh, if there's any update on data or information regarding environmental persistence. In other words, how long, if the virus is on a surface, and of course it has to do with what surface it's on, but um, the last time I looked at kind of a rule of thumb was it could be viable on a surface for up to 72 hours. But uh, th this is an area that Christy works in a lot. And Right, I mean, I, I haven't seen any new information, just information that confirms what we already been told about it, we've read about it because it is structured in a similar way as other coronaviruses and other other similar viruses in terms of its survivability on surfaces and under different environmental conditions. Um, right now it's getting a lot of attention, but still relying on somewhat older data is its survivability in wastewater to look at it as a tool for predicting public health outcomes in communities where maybe it's deemed there's neighborhood zip codes where we're not seeing a lot of cases, but you can look at uh, wastewater uh, plants that serve that community to see what levels of the novel coronavirus, maybe it's just the genetic material, but you're seeing what could be circulating in the wastewater, and that can be used as a predictor for what they might see in the community. And so along with that, then there have been some more recent interest in looking at aerosolized wastewater droplets and how it may compromise a wastewater facility and therefore potentially pose a health risk to wastewater treatment plant workers. Um, but back to the surveillance and Dr. Del Close or Dr. Emery can hear, you know, but people who are, are positive for the novel coronavirus intend to uh, shed in their feces much sooner than they might show symptoms that are severe enough to seek medical attention. So. And we're hoping that um, wastewater surveillance and wastewater-based epidemiology will be a tool for communities. That, that's correct. And the other cool thing about using wastewater, and Christy, correct me if I'm wrong, is um, you know the, these wastewater labs, uh, they retain specimens of water going back a certain period of time. And I know in Europe, in Spain specifically, they've gone back several months, even before January, and found traces of this coronavirus in Spanish wastewater that date back to you know 2019, the, the latter half. You can go, you can do a detective tracing backwards and look at that. That's story. right. And, and sorry, yeah. And there's so much interest in, in what's happening now that I know um, there's different consortia that are started throughout the United States to look at this to see if we can get this up and running at the national level. So universities that have been shut down because of the pandemic um, have been working with their local uh, water facilities to start archiving samples to store them so that when their labs are up and running, they can go back and analyze. And then look at the public health data they had in terms of number of cases and testing and see what correlations might be found. Excellent. Uh, uh, probably our last question of the day came in. 
And uh, this is a good scenario question. And it's, you know, you, like, you have two household members that live in the same house, one test positive, one test negative. I guess the recommendation would be that they quarantine together. But when, when do you retest the negative person again? Should you retest that person? Do you just assume that uh, they're going to, you know, as long as they quarantine and no symptoms, then after 14 days, they can get out in public? Or what, what is the recommendation on someone positive in the family versus everybody else who's, who's negative in the family? That is one of the toughest questions that I get asked. And just today, I've gotten it asked twice already. So um, I guess the, the, the standard answer is it depends, right? Um, I, you know, what I always, and, and the people that do with contact tracing for us and, and all that, I really urge them to go beyond just simply asking who else was exposed and really asking questions about the environment, the household itself. What are the characteristics? It is not, um, you know, not every household is the same. People who live in nice big houses and have several bedrooms and several bathrooms, it might be, it is possible to effectively self-isolate within the home by doing things such as staying in your own, the, the infected person, staying in your own bedroom, using your own bathroom. And then if you go out of your room to interact with the family, everybody wears a mask, everybody washes their hands, and that can be very effective um, in that case. But you know, there are other people who share a one or two bedroom apartment and there's only one bathroom and there's only one bedroom. And then they try things like, well, okay, let's say it's it's a couple that lives in, in a one bedroom apartment. Well, you know, I'm, I'm sending my husband who's the positive one out to the couch to sleep or vice versa. Yeah, I mean, that's better than nothing, but it, let's face it, in a one bedroom apartment, it's going to be very, very difficult not to have interaction. So you need that type of information. Um, in general, uh, I can only speak for what we do with healthcare personnel. Right now, we have to be very careful because with this spike that we're seeing, we are also seeing increased numbers of cases among healthcare professionals at a time when we need our hospitals staffed um, very adequately to take care of this increase in demand. And so um, what we are doing in general is if uh, somebody is exposed Excuse me, to a to a household member. Let, let's say a, a house a, a healthcare worker is exposed to a household member. We will typically um, get this information, see what we can advise in terms of self isolation within the house. And if our employee is asymptomatic, we wait. We don't let them come back to work. They stay at home. But after about five days or so uh, from the last exposure, we test them. Just like I was saying before, you wait the five days. This is asymptomatic. And then if they are negative, we let them come back to work. We still continue whatever type of isolation and precautions we can at the house, uh, knowing that they're not perfect. And we let them work, but with a mask, we really reinforce all of that. And if at any point in time they so much as sneeze, I'm being a little bit facetious, <laughs> but have a minimal symptom, they get retested, they get pulled. Okay? Because if we over-quarantine everybody that is a healthcare worker, we're, we've already run into this problem in some hospitals. The staff shortages are severe, and then there's not enough doctors and nurses to take care of patients. So the CDC allows this. It allows you to gauge your return to work advice uh, based on your staff supply. As long as your staffing supply is good, then sure, they can stay home and, and wait. But when you know push comes to shove and you're missing people, there are 
things that you can do to safely return some of these people to work um, that have that are exposed, but they have not yet had the disease. Excellent, because I can I can foresee, you know, maybe it's a rare scenario, but you live with mom in close quarters, mom tests positive. Well, she may not pass, you know, she may not get you infected for 14 days later, then you may not show signs and symptoms for another 14 days later. So you're looking at a month later after mom tested positive that you even know you're you you have that virus. That that's right. And actually, with mom, it's easier. When we get into real problems, remember, th think about the makeup of most hospitals. It is a predominantly female workforce. Most women have uh, their kids, and many of them have small kids at home. You can talk about social distancing till the cows come home. No offense, Dave. Um, that, but uh, you know, it's impossible with a two or a four-year-old for that mother who's also a nurse at our hospital to socially distance from their two or four-year-old. It's just who may be the one that's positive, right? So we don't forget, kids get it too. They don't get it as they, they resist it a lot better, and they don't get it as often, but they still get it. And then those are particularly difficult cases to manage. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. I, I'm going to ask this one last question, and then I'm going to I'm going to shut it because it's an interesting question that somebody typed in. Are autopsies being done on people with suspicion, or are we testing anybody post-mortem for the for the virus? I think you're muted, George. Oh, not at all. Autopsies are all cases of deaths, but if, if the typical scenario is somebody who has died and you don't know the cause, uh, and they may have tested for COVID while they were alive in the hospital were negative. Very often they are doing that at autopsies because. Um, you know, sometimes you you get more specimens, so you can you can check for it. But it is being done. It's not necessarily been being done routinely, but on questionable cases, yes. Excellent. All right. Well, we're perfect timing, right at the one o'clock mark on the nose. So uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna shut her down and thank you to all of our panelists, especially our two guest panelists, Lily and Julie. Your expertise and your and your feedback today was was great. Uh, and I believe this is our last of our webinar series, scheduled ones. We're looking at doing some more in the future, uh, but this was our last one. I think it, it uh, provided great value to our to the general public, to the specific uh, uh, sectors in our in our workplaces. So again, thank you to everybody for coordinating it. Thank you to Michelle McDaniel on the UT side, Jordan Huggins from uh, the HASC side for really wrangling all of us. Uh, uh, goofballs on here every week to, to get us in shape. So we appreciate both of their help and uh, we will see you again when we see you. Stay safe, everybody. Thank you.